Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. The Bible interprets itself. So if when you come across a difficult passage in the scripture, there's a key to understanding that passage somewhere else in the Bible. So the better we know our Bibles, the more easily we're going to be able to understand certain things that might initially seem mysterious. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Daniel chapter 8. Now here's Pastor Brian. So as we pick up in the 8th chapter, I don't know if I mentioned this, maybe I did in the beginning, but Daniel is interesting in its writing. It is written in two languages. It is written in Hebrew and in Aramaic. So chapter one is written in Hebrew and from chapter two through verse seven is written in Aramaic. So Aramaic would have been the language of Babylon would have been the language of the Chaldeans and the people in that region. And now as we come to chapter 8, it switches back to Hebrew. Now, now the languages are very similar, but they're, they're different. They're probably like Portuguese and Italian or, you know, something like that. Spanish and Italian, something like that. So there, there's some similarities. Many people leave and it's more than likely true that the the Jewish language of the first century was actually more Aramaic than it was ancient Hebrew. It was was probably a bit of a mix, I think, but uh, nevertheless, so so why, why would this book be written in these two languages? Well, I think what we see is the chapters from two through seven are addressed more to the sort of the universal scope or the nations that will rule the world. Where chapter one and then picking up in chapter eight, the shift is back more specifically toward God's dealing with the Jewish people and the relation of the nations to Israel itself. And so just a little bit of information there for you. So this is a vision that Daniel has in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. So chapter seven was a vision that he had in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Now, Remember the, the seventh chapter, they, these are similar chapters, but they're, they're different. So the seventh chapter, there was the vision of the four beasts, and they represented the four kingdoms that would come along. And that would be the Babylonian kingdom that was at the present time, and then the Medo-Persian empire, then the Greek empire, and then chapter seven included this fourth beast that was dreadful, that was 
terrible, that it was exceedingly frightful, that had iron teeth and crushed and broke everything to pieces. Well, that was speaking of the fourth empire, which would have been the Roman Empire. Now, the eighth chapter doesn't go as far in the prophetic history as the seventh chapter does. So it doesn't go to Rome. And it doesn't even address Babylon. It moves beyond Babylon. And it deals with the Medo-Persian Empire briefly, but more specifically with the Greek Empire. And then with the things that happened in the Greek Empire after the time of the death of the founder of the Greek Empire, who would be Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, I, I don't know if there's plenty of you guys in here that are similar to my age. Maybe you remember the movie from ages ago, uh, the Alexander the Great, who was Richard Burton, I think, played Alexander the Great. Now they've made a few, you know, epic kinds of film sets that I've heard they're not that good. So I, I don't remember the first one being that good either. But Alexander the Great was, was referred to as the Great by the Romans. So it wasn't a name that he had for himself. But Alexander the Great was really the greatest ruler in the ancient world and perhaps in the, all the way to the present time. He conquered more land than any other individual. And he ruled over this vast, vast empire from Greece all the way down to India. And it was relatively short-lived. I mean, his entire life from the time he was 20 years old until he died at 33 was one continuous battle, one continuous siege of one a kingdom after another until he had basically conquered all of the empires in the world at that time, the known, the known world. So he is going to appear here in this chapter. Now, remember, this is uh, Alexander comes onto the scene in the 300s. And so this is a considerable amount of time before that happens. Daniel is here prophesying in the 500s. So just a, a little bit of background there. So I, Daniel, had a vision after the one I had already, or after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision... I saw myself in the citadel of Susha, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. Now, this is really interesting because Daniel is having a vision of the palace of the Persian kings that are not yet in power. So he's, in a sense, he's being transported into the future. Like, remember how Ezekiel was in Babylon as a captive, but he would be transported in the spirit back to Jerusalem. And so he wouldn't, you know, literally be walking around Jerusalem, but he would be, for all practical purposes, in Jerusalem 
watching all the activity in Jerusalem. So this is, this is a vision. So he sees in this vision, it's actually a prophetic vision of what's to come. That Susha will become the, um, the center of power in the future. So I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it. No one could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. Now, I'm just going to jump ahead. We're going to read here in a minute or two that the, the passage itself gives us the interpretation. This ram represents the Medes and the Persians. Two horns, one is larger than the other. The second one is larger than the other. So it's this, it's this combined kingdom of Media and Persia. They are one kingdom. They're two different groups that come together as one kingdom. And so he says in verse five, as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. Now, notice the language of the ferocity of this um, goat and its brutal treatment of the ram. And this is actually what Alexander did to the Persians. There had been long-standing war between uh, the Persians, of course, ruled. They had conquered everyone, and they had brutalized uh, the Greek states throughout history. And so this uh, Alexander the Great is taking revenge for all that the Persians had done to them over the centuries, couple of centuries. All of that is now being vented on them. So that's why you have that language, that description of the fierceness and the brutality of this uh, goat. But then it says this, the goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, let me, let me just read and then we're gonna go down to the interpretation, then we'll come back. So out of one of them, out of one of the horns came another horn which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down because of rebellion 
the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 days. So evenings and mornings are the equivalent of one day. So 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there stood before me one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. And he came near the place where I was standing and I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face on the ground. Then he touched me and raised me up to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. So notice that now, the appointed time of the end, that's mentioned here. And so the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. It's so great when the Bible just interprets itself for us. We don't have to guess. And you know, it, I think in a general sense, this is a principle that's good for us to understand. The Bible interprets itself. So if when you come across a, a difficult passage in the scripture, there's a key to understanding that passage somewhere else in the Bible. So the better we know our Bibles, the more easily we're going to be able to understand certain things that might initially seem uh, mysterious. So here, here's a great example. In the book of Revelation, the 12th chapter, John sees a vision of a woman who has uh, the moon under her feet and she has a garland of 12 stars. She's wrapped in the sun. She has a garland of 12 stars around her head. Now, the question is, what, what is that imagery about? And there, there's been all kinds of speculation quite often. Um, it is speculated that the, that the, um, the woman is, is the Virgin Mary. Um, and that's not completely wrong but it's not totally accurate either. But what you find is back in Genesis, we have the answer to that mystery in Revelation. Because back in Genesis, Joseph has a dream and he has a dream that the sun, moon, and the stars bowed down and worshiped him. And Jacob interpreted the dream. He said, are you saying that your mother your brothers and I are going to bow down and worship you. So what do we learn from that? We learn that the, the image or the vision in Revelation is the people of Israel. It's the nation of Israel. Jacob 
described it in that way. So simple point is that the Bible interprets itself much of the time, most of the time. And so here, here is a very crystal clear example of how that's done. The next verse clarifies it even further. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. So that would be, as we've already talked about, that would be Alexander the Great. Now the four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. So now let's go back. So Alexander, he conquers the world in about 10 years. And then he dies prematurely at the age of approximately 33 years old in Babylon. And there's speculation, you know, did somebody kill him? Uh, You know, did somebody poison him? Did somebody murder him? But most of the historians believe that he he actually died of malaria or uh, some similar, perhaps a pneumonia or something like that because he actually contracted something and then uh, was, he, he battled this for about 14 days and then he finally died. And as he was dying, the question was presented to him, who is to take the kingdom? And it is purported that he said, give it to the strong. So the strongest ones can take it. Now, Alexander had conquered the world basically with a band of, close friends that he grew up with. And of course, they amassed a a great army. But but these were all men that he had been associated with from the time that he was a boy. And so after the death of Alexander, there was about a a 20-year power struggle. And it came out that there were four of his generals that ended up dividing up the empire. Now, two of them become prominent in Daniel and in relation to Israel. And that would be the Seleucid kings in the north, in the area of Syria. And the uh, Seleucids would have ruled um, Syria all the way over Babylon, Persia, and a a portion of uh, Turkey what we know as Turkey today. And then there was another general named Ptolemy. And Ptolemy became the ruler in the southern region, and he ruled from Egypt. And so the Ptolemies became like the pharaohs of that period of time. And it's, it's between these, these battling forces. Now, there's two other generals, Cassander and Lysimachus, and they, they took, uh, Cassander, I think, took Macedonia and the Greek part, and then Lysimachus took the rest of it. Now, they were all Greeks, and they battled, as, as the kingdoms went on, they battled for power, but, but they were all essentially promoting, in one sense, the same sort of a thing. They were promoting 
the Greek culture. So Alexander the Great, uh, he Hellenized the world. He took the ancient world and brought it all together under, under Greek culture. Wherever Alexander went, he installed Greek culture. He, in, he uh, set up cities that were named after himself. So many cities in the ancient world were named Alexandria. Alexandria. And the most prominent one would be in Egypt. So, so all of this is happening. Now, as we go back to the story earlier, and we see that these, uh, the four prominent horns, they grew up toward the four winds of heaven. And then verse nine, out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south, to the east, and toward the beautiful land. So this is a reference to the northern power, to the Seleucids. And the Seleucids, the monarch was called Antiochus. And you have, um, in the New Testament, we read about the cities of Antioch. Well, Antioch was named after Antiochus. Now, Antiochus III was uh, friendly toward the people of Israel. So when the, when the, um, you know, when the Persians ruled, they gave the Jews, they gave them a, a considerable amount of autonomy. When the Greeks overthrew the Persians, they treated the subjected people similarly. So Antiochus III kept up a similar kind of a policy with the Jewish people. He recognized that they had a distinct religion from the rest of the empire. He allowed for that. He didn't try to impose uh, any of the customs upon them that would have been contrary to their law. He had an amicable relationship with them. But when he died and his son came to power, everything changed. So this is the person that we're going to deal with here. Is he's called Antiochus IV. And he's also called Antiochus Epiphanes. He named himself Epiphanes, which meant God manifested. So he saw himself as a god. Now, as we read here, it says, and it's speaking about, you know, it's referring to him as this other horn. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens. It threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down because of a rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. So this is all a description of the activity of Antiochus.
For the month of January, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled 40 Days of Grace by Paul David Tripp. Choices that we make have lasting effects, and we all live with regrets. But are you paralyzed by your past? Do you live in the dark shrouds of if-onlys? Does your past influence your present more than God's past, present, and future grace? Have you received and are living out the forgiveness that is yours because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Well, in his book, 40 Days of Grace, Paul David Tripp will take you deep into the grace of God. He will help you understand God's grace that exposes what you want to hide so he can forgive you and deliver you. You will get to know God's grace that welcomes you to live with a hope in the present because it will free you to leave your past behind. God's grace is essential for the Christian life. It is something you will never deserve, but can always expect. If you need to experience the grace of God, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order 40 Days of Grace by Paul David Tripp. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Daniel. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.